right, last Wednesday night, which was last year, um, we had got into chapter, uh, almost to the end of chapter 4. Basically, uh, those of you who haven't been in the class, the story of Esther is about uh, during the reign of King Xerxes, uh, who um, decided to get rid of his wife because she wouldn't do what she said, didn't do what he said. And uh, in the process, he ended up uh, marrying a Jewish girl by the name of Esther, who became queen. Uh, After she became queen, there was a guy by the name of Haman who was made prime minister uh, there in Persia. And uh, this guy evidently had some type of ego problem. Uh, But Queen Esther's uncle, by the name of Mordecai, Uh, would not bow down to him. That made him mad, so he went and talked to the king, King Xerxes, and talked him into passing a proclamation that a year from uh, that particular meeting, basically, because of the way the lots were cast, that all the Jewish people would be destroyed. And as we said, there's around 15 million Jews at this time. And uh, when Mordecai found out about it, and this brings us up to where we were Wednesday night, he, of course, dressed in sackcloth and ashes and stood at the gate of the palace, and when his uh, adopted daughter uh, Esther found out about it, she sent him out some clothes to change, and he refused and told uh, the uh, person that was sent out with the clothes to go back and tell Esther what was going on and how that Haman was going to kill all the Jews, and um, he basically told Esther, you need to go talk to the king about it, and Esther was hesitant for what reason? All right. Uh, she would be killed if she went into the presence of, ki- of the king without being invited. And we talked about how that the way that the palace was run was if somebody came into the palace proper, the, ro- uh, the throne room of the king, without an invitation, uh, they were to be put, a de- put to death according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians. The only way that would prevent that person being put to death was to be for the king to extend his scepter. And so... Um, she, of course, had some uh, concerns about that, and basically uh, Mordecai told her um, three things. He said, uh, don't you think that just because you're the queen that you're going to survive this proclamation because you are a Jew, and so you'll be put to death too, and if you don't do this, God's going to figure out another way to save us. Uh, but then he reminded her that perhaps that in the providence of God, the reason why she was put in this very position was to save the Jews, that everything about her life had led her up to this particular point. And in fact, um, at the end of verse 14, uh, he says, And who knoweth whether thou art come to this kingdom for such a time as this? And so that's where we left off Wednesday night, with her uh, being told by Hezekiah. And of course, we spent some time talking about the providence of God and uh, how it worked in this particular book. So we'll pick up with verse uh, 15. Then Esther begged them, return Mordecai this answer. Go gather together all the Jews that are present in Sushan, and fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. So Esther uh, 
sends the word back to Mordecai, well, I'm going to do this, but if I'm going to do this, I want you to fast for me for three days, day and night. And uh, what would be the purpose in that? How's everybody going on a diet? Help her out. To get God's attention, notice that she was serious. Michael, what do you want to say? All right, a purification of sorts. Um, evidently, behind the scenes, and all three of your answers agree with this, that this was uh, a religious practice to get God's attention, perhaps to pray to God, to make sure they were in a right relationship with God. As, as I mentioned Wednesday night, it's always amazing to me how that, um, even though God is not mentioned here in the text, and even though praying is not mentioned in the text, it's obvious that God is behind what's going on, and it's obvious that they want God's attention. Uh, the amazing part of this is whoever wrote the book of Esther is doing his very best to not make, it, make mention of anything about prayer and make, doing his best not to mention to anything about God. And, of course, people have often discussed, well, why is this? Here's a book that God's all through it, but yet God's not mentioned. What was the point in that? And the only point I can see is he, they're trying to, in this book to make us realize that even though we do not see God, uh, even though when we talk to God, we, we don't hear a verbal answer from Him from out of the heavens or whatnot, but yet God is working behind the scenes even though he, He's not visible. And I think that's the whole point of the book of Esther and why they made a deliberate attempt, if you will, to show how in everyday life, because this is an everyday, this is real history here, everyday life, God is still there, even if you don't see his name mentioned in a book. He is still there, and he's still in our lives, even though we see no uh, visible representation of him, though we know we don't hear anything audible to him, even though when we speak to him, uh, we know through faith that he's listening, but yet we don't get an immediate response that he's listening to us. I think that's the reason why this is set up this way, and I think that the author of this book, um, and we're not sure who wrote the book. Some people think Mordecai did, but we don't know for sure. Um, intentionally, just mentions fasting to cover the event, but he doesn't say anything about praying. But obviously, this has everything to do with God. Because other than that, they're just going hungry because they're hoping that somehow being hungry will make something change. And um, I've learned from past experience that going hungry doesn't do anything but just make you hungry. You know, so anyway, Michael, you have something else you want to say? Could have been. Like I said, we don't know the timetable, so it'd be almost like us getting ready to um, have Thanksgiving in the morning, but yet because of the seriousness of this, and that's what the point of the fasting is. This is serious stuff. This is not something you just do lightly. Uh, we decided that we're not going to eat the turkey and the stuffing and the mashed potatoes and the gravy and the rolls and the sweet potatoes and the apple. Oh, I'm getting hungry. Wait a minute. Um, but anyway, uh, it shows the seriousness of the situation. And don't, like I said, don't know the timetable, but what Esther is about to do, as we talked about last Wednesday night, is, is, it's like walking a tightrope. It could go either way. She could, she could um, you know, be brought into the king's chamber and allowed to speak, or she could be put to death. And um, I even brought out last Wednesday night, you know, not only did she have this going against her, the law, but the fact that she was a woman. And, um, you know, they weren't that easily received. Yes, absolutely. 
And it's funny how you, when you mention that, remind me of the fact that that tradition has been carried over by the, the Muslims. They have, uh, the, they have the fast of Ramadan, but, uh, and you think, well, they're fasting this whole month. No, they're not. They're just fasting from daylight to uh, darkness. And once darkness comes in, the boy, they can go high on the hog. No, they wouldn't do that. But they would, go, <laughs> they would, they would uh, be able to eat what they wanted to eat. Uh, so that kind of, it's kind of a, a misnomer. I bet they're good and hungry by the time the sun goes down. They probably go to Golden Corral or someplace like that. But anyway, but it shows the seriousness of this, and it also shows at the back at the, at the end of verse 16 where she says, and if I perish, I perish. Now, that almost sounds like fatalism when you read it, but the point that she's making here is not that, okay, well, I'm just going to do this, and if I die, I guess I'm going to die. No, the point is that she is determined to do this. She's meeting the challenge. Uh, she has decided that this is something that needs to be done, and she's willing to put her life on the line because it is something that's worth putting her life on the line. And uh, there are some things in our lives that sometimes we have to make a, dist- a stand, uh, regardless of the outcome and how it might affect us and how it might uh, cause us to sacrifice. But she's, re- she's basically saying, I'm all in. Uh, I'm committed to this uh, because this is something that, that needs to be done. Uh, any comments or thing you mean by like to add there? All right, well, that moves us into uh, chapter 5. And because of her decision to do what she is going to do, she has to now go into the throne room of the king to see if she can get an audience with him. And so it says in verse 1 of chapter 5, Now it came to pass on the third day, meaning after the fasting had been done, that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house over against the king's house. And the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house over against the gate of the house. Now, it seems like a lot of talking to, to make a point here, but there's two points that need to be made here. First of all, I want you to notice the, pa- the, the fact that when it came time for her to go see the king, it says in the text, she put on her royal apparel. What is going on here? Why, why, why is she, what's she doing here? All right. She is trying to get as pretty as she can be. And the royal apparel, apparel would be the most beautiful uh, outfit that she has. It probably was purple. It probably had gold trimming. It probably had all kinds of things to make her pretty. The point is, she's trying to make the king, first of all, realize that she's the queen. This is not just any person entering into uh, the courtroom uh, of uh, the royal palace. This is the queen. This is not just another woman. This is the woman that he picked to be queen. The second thing she's trying to do is she's trying to charm him with her beauty. Um, The reason why we saw earlier that Xerxes married Esther is because she was the prettiest of them all. She, he was smitten by her beauty is the idea behind the text. And so um, he's trying, she's trying, it's been 30 days as we've already talked about. And she wants to remind him um, when she walks into that room that this is not just another person, this is the queen and this is the most beautiful woman you've ever saw according to you, the way you looked at it before. And um, I don't know how many of you who are married, who have been married, uh, remember the first time you saw uh, your spouse. And um, I still remember the day that I said, I've got to ask that girl out. 
Uh, I was at a wedding, and Karen was in uh, one of my friends' uh, wedding as a bridesmaid. And as she was walking down the aisle as a bridesmaid, I asked her out that very evening. Because I said, wow, I've got to find out more about this girl, and I've got to, we've got to go out. And then maybe perhaps you remember the day that your bride walked down the aisle. And um, I'll never forget that day, uh, how beautiful Karen was when she walked down the aisle. And that's something that's going on here. She, he, she wants to remind the king who she is and what she supposedly means to him. And the rest of the verse, it almost seems weird. The, 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 guy, the, the writer said, They stood in the inner court of the house over against the king's house. The king sat upon the royal throne, the royal house, over against the gate of the house. This is trying to give us a, a, a kind of a layout of how the throne room was and how Esther was going to come into the room. It's not like she was just going to, boom, she's there. But the king would get a, a glimpse of her as she's walking toward him. It would start off as being kind of far away, and then she would enter the main vestibule there and start walking in. And it was almost like, uh, a, as I mentioned earlier, a bride coming down an aisle. And um, at first the king might not know who it is, but then as he, she gets closer and closer, and he comes into fuel, she comes into fuel, full view, those two words hard to say together, um, that there's almost this idea of this uh, ambiance of, of, of glory around her, if you will. And so that's why the, the author spent so much time letting us know that she just didn't open a door and walk in and say, here I am. But there was a, uh, a procession that came in and that he was able to uh, see her as she walked in and then be very impressed by her beauty and the fact that this was the queen. And so in verse 2, it says, And it was so when the king saw the queen Esther standing in the court that she obtained favor in his sight, and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. Uh, once again, this is a Persian tradition signifying that the king has allowed you to come in and in a way... You might bow down before a king or maybe kiss his ring or kiss his big toe or whatever the thing may be. Um, she would have to touch the top of the scepter. So um, we don't know for fact because nobody lived back then, but they think as the scepter was extended forward that the person would come and bow down and, and touch the top of it, signifying that their life had been spared and that the king had extended the scepter. And as I told you uh, Wednesday night, um, there are etchings into walls, what they call bas reliefs, and some of the things they've dug up uh, in Persia as far as this time period that shows every king always having a scepter in his hand, because evidently that was a lot of a big part of Persian uh, culture. But in verse three, we can understand and appreciate the fact that not only did uh, Esther receive an audience with the king, but evidently she did a good job of dressing. She did a good job of reminding, and the way she walked in made a good impression on this king because notice what the text says. Then the king said unto her, What will thou, Queen Esther, and what is thy request? It shall be given thee to half of the kingdom. Um, this, this, he was happy that she was there. Uh, this was not a terse moment. Um, you get the impression that uh, he kind of fell in love with her all again. He was willing to do whatever she asked up to half of the kingdom. And so in verse 4, and answer, then Esther answered, If it seem good unto the king, let it 
the king and Haman come this day into the banquet that I have prepared for them. Do what, Esther? I thought you were supposed to go ask about sparing the Jews, but instead you're going to invite the king and the prime minister to a dinner in your private chambers? What in the world's going on here? Why didn't she just come out and say, hey, Haman's trying to kill us all. Why is she doing it this way? That's my... All right. Uh, there's no wrong or right answer to this. We can guess all day long. The Bible doesn't tell us. But there is obviously some uh, tragedy, uh, strategic moves being involved here. Um, it's kind of like a chess game. What would have happened if right then and there she just fell down in front of the king and she started sobbing and crying and saying, Oh, king, I'm about to be put to death. I, I'm a Jew. Um, and, and Haman, your prime minister, is going to kill us all. What do you think would have been the reaction? Give me a possibility. What would have been a possible reaction? Yep. <laughs> yep, you're a Jew. Okay, then. All right, we'll see you later. Um, it, first of all, the king might have felt like he was being deceived. Um, he, he, he could have felt like, you know, you have really broken trust with me. Uh, why haven't you told me this earlier? We have spent intimate time together. You've been my queen for some time now. Uh, you've kept this back from me. And he might have felt like he'd been betrayed, and that could cause a negative reaction. Yes, Julie? Absolutely. There was decorum that was involved as far as the affairs of, of the palace. And uh, having a woman break down and sob in front of the presence of whoever there was there. We don't know who was there in the courtroom, but there was... Uh, perhaps uh, assistants, there might have been ministers of different things, uh, there might have been chamberlains there, there were uh, different people that are part, usually part of the king's throne room, and that would not be the proper place or the proper time for to have a, uh, a crying woman um, take place. And you know how, what a crying room, woman will do to a room, it will mess it up in a hurry. No. Yes, Dennis. All right. Make sure that the one she's going to accuse is going to be uh, the one that is there. And, and Eric, I saw you had a minute ago. I didn't get to you. I'm sorry. Right. So now, so you put him in a situation where he's going to have to choose between the two. And as you said, he evidently has a lot of trust in this man because he's made him second in command. And another thing that's involved here also is the fact that um, who is the one that gave him permission to do this? Who ultimately gave Haman the, 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 the permission to kill all the Jews? The king did. So basically, when she comes in and she says, all the Jews are going to be killed, she's basically saying, and it's your fault. She doesn't verbalize it that way, and obviously she turns it around, we're going to see later in the story. But this is not the place to do that. And it may have caused uh, such, and we know from earlier in this particular book, that the, the, the king doesn't handle... Uh, people rejecting him very well. Um, one before Esther, you know, not sure what happened to her, but we know she's not around anymore. And so to have a woman come in and say, uh, I'm going to be put to death, and it's Haman's fault, but you're the one that calls Haman to do th let Haman do this, uh, she, he might just say, okay, then we'll just get you out of the picture also, and we'll have another beauty contest and get another queen. Um, he may have reacted with the idea... Well, this is just gossip. This is just royal gossip. Where are your facts? Yeah, I need to know more about this. 
and it would have caused an investigation, and Haman might have been able to turn that investigation around or maybe had been able to uh, come up with another plan to convince the king. So um, it's all about timing. It's all about being in the right place at the right time. And um, basically, she was going to get one shot at this, and she needed to make sure that, you, that she did it right because once she let the king know about this situation, there was, knowing, there was no going back. And so she was being very crafty here, and she understood that it had to be handled in a certain kind of way. Uh, way. So in verse 4, she makes a very unusual request, because normally when there was a, a feast going on, a banquet of some type, uh, the king and the rest of the males would meet in one part of the palace, and she would have a feast, as we saw earlier, for the women. Uh, but this was highly unusual because she was inviting the king and Haman, evidently, back to her private area and was going to have a uh, meal for them. And um, Xerxes, of course, was a man of appetites. And this would be a very special meal because of the fact that it was specially prepared for him by a queen. Um, you know, we always like it when we come home and and, and the wife says, well, you know, I've fixed something special for you today, and it may be your favorite meal. Um, my wife makes some mean country fried steak, doesn't she, Jeremy? It's, it's probably one of the best, best meals in the world. She gets it nice, oh, it's so good, and you got the rice and the gravy and Sister Schulbert rolls, and oh, man. Um, but anyway, you can tell it's not lunchtime yet. But uh, so we have some of that going on. This is something that's been specially prepared for her, him, not by um, somebody else, but by the queen. And uh, why would Haman be interested in coming to this meal? Absolutely. Uh, imagine if you got an invite and going to go eat in the private dining room with the president and, and the first lady, or maybe some king of another country and his queen. And you got to eat in their private dining room. It wasn't part of the, the normal uh, tapestry of what everybody else gets to do. This is a very special thing. And so I can see Haman, when he gets the invitation, he goes, Aha, I chose you how important I am. I get invited to a private dinner with just the king and the queen in her private area. Now, Jeremy, I saw your hand start to go up. Do you want to say something? Absolutely. Because uh, you can see how he would tell everybody about this. He gets to go. So, um, verse 5 says, Then the king said, Calls Haman to make haste, that he may do as Esther had said. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And the king said unto Esther at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? Even as to half of the kingdom it shall be performed. So he's still smitten by her. Then answered Esther and said, my petition and my request is, you almost hear a drum roll starting here. I think that's why it's phrased the way that it did, because everybody's hanging, what's, what's she want? What's she want? If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my petition and to perform my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them, and I will do tomorrow as the king hath said. So what does she say she wants? I want you to come eat another meal with me, and then I will tell you. Now, once again, she's putting it off, and we could <clears throat> come up with all kinds of different reasons uh, why she decided to do this. Uh, maybe she's trying to build anticipation. 
uh, so that when the time comes, the king will be eager to grant her request. It may be that she's trying to build up uh, Haman's trust in her, that he is so totally going to be caught off guard when she finally makes her request, that he uh, won't have a defense, that he will just uh, be so uh, overwhelmed that um, he'll just sit there and stammer and slobber and and um, with a chicken leg in his hand and, and won't be able to know what to do. Uh, but anyway, she has put off make, uh, letting her request be known and going to bring him back for another meal. Yes, Tony? Absolutely. And um, she's got a witness now that not only did she say it to the king in the throne room, but she said it in front of Haman. He's, he's, she, uh, he's made the request in front of Haman that he wants to do what that she wants. He wants to do what she wants him to do, and now even Haman knows about it. But very, very good point. Anything else? Well, <clears throat> verse 9 says, Then Haman went forth that day joyful and with a glad heart. Now, picture Haman, if you will, leaving this nice dinner, and he found, it, found out in the dinner that uh, he is going to be invited back for another dinner, and uh, she might have already told him what's on the menu. And it says that he went out with a glad heart. Now, why would he go out with a glad heart? He feels very important. He feels more important than he's ever felt. Uh, he was named prime minister. Uh, Xerxes gave him permission to kill all the Jews, which made him happy. And now he's been invited to this special dinner. This is not something that would happen normally. Uh, he was singled out from all the men in the entire nation to be a part of this. And not only was he invited to this meal, but you know what? I was such a good guest. I was so witty. I told the best stories. I had the best jokes. I ate in such a wonderful way uh, that I did not uh, offend the queen, but instead she's inviting me back. I must be somebody special. So I could just see him leaving, and boy, he's just walking on cloud nine. I am the man. Oh, man, look at me. But as he walked outside the palace, dun, 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 all that came crashing down. Because if a man can have an ego built up, a man can have his ego tore down in one little move. Verse 9 says, when Haman went forth that day, joyful and with a glad heart, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate that he stood not up nor moved for him, he was full of indignation against Mordecai. Oh, that Mordecai, look at him over there. He won't show me the honor that I, uh, oh, I could just kill him. Oh, oh. But verse 10 says, nevertheless, Haman refrained himself. Now, why did Haman refrain himself? That means that he wanted to go ahead and kill him right then. So why did he refrain himself? You don't get the, the impression that he could just go around killing anybody he wanted to kill without um, permission. And, uh, of course, this would be something right there in front of the gate. Here would be a man that's all of a sudden walking out the gate of the palace and walking right over to a man and evidently stabbing him or doing something else to him. Uh, I think he was so mad that he could probably beat Mordecai half to death and kill him. And, um, but nevertheless, he refrained himself and... Um, but he wasn't going to let it go. In fact, verse 10 continues, says, When he came home, he sent and called for his friends and uh, Zeresh, which was his wife. 
He says, I want to get everybody around. I want to tell you all about something. Okay? Now, he might originally plan to do this because he was so excited about the banquet. But this is, this is not going to be what this is about. Listen very closely to verse 11 and see if you pick up on something here. And Haman told them of the glory of his riches and the multitude of his children and all the things wherein the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the prince and servants of the king. Well, picture in your mind, Mrs. Haman, he's got everybody gathered around him and he begins his uh, little talk. And uh, what is the impression you get as you look at this verse? All right, obviously not giving credit to God. What would you say? He's bragging. He's basically saying, look at me. Notice how the personal pronoun is used in, in this text. The glory of his riches. Hey, friends, even wife, look at all the money I have. I'm a wealthy, wealthy man, and evidently he was very wealthy because how did he uh, work out the deal with the king? And uh, the multitude of his children. Now, why would that be something to brag about? All right. Um, the more children you had, the more you had to carry on your lineage. And, of course, land was passed down through uh, children. And so uh, even the Bible talks about those who are godly people, that uh, it's a blessing to a man to count his children as arrows and hope that you have a quiver full of them. And um, especially in the way that the... the um, land and the uh, property rights were set up in Palestine, that the more children you had, uh, you'd have better off uh, carrying on your inheritance, plus the more children you had, you had more people to work and take care of you. Um, it was a sign of wealth to have a lot of children. Now, if you have a lot of children today, it, it might make you poor. Um, I was talking about Karen a few moments ago, and, and of course I might have shared this with you before, but uh, when I was, a, I was a proper gentleman, when I decided to uh, marry her, I went to her father and uh, went and visited him and said, Mr. C, uh, I've decided I want to marry your daughter Karen and I want to get your permission. And uh, this, is, uh, this is the honest truth. This is the exact words he said to me. He said, well, I don't mind if you marry her, but just remember, you're going to be in debt the rest of your life. That's exactly what he told me. And you know what? He was right. Now, Karen went and told her mother about what I was doing, and, and this, is, this is the honest truth, too. She says, well, Karen, well, I just hope he doesn't beat you. She really said that. I don't know what it was about my personality that she thought I might, because uh, she always thought I looked like Tom Selleck back then. Her mom did. I don't know why. But, but anyway, um, but that's exactly, exactly what happened. Uh, my point is, having children today are very expensive, just paying for diapers even. But back then... Um, you wanted to have a lot of children because it, uh, it was a status symbol. But I like what he says in the latter part of the verse. And all the things wherein the king had promoted him. And um, in the original language, uh, I don't know if you have it in your Bible, but mine is in italics, meaning it's not in the original language. And they had a tough time translating this because the, the word there is not all the things. It's the idea of all. All. Uh, it's, it's almost like he's making the claim that the king had given him the kingdom. That, you know, the king is the king, but really, who's in charge? I, I'm really the one who's the king. He's just kind of there as a puppet figure. And it's obvious that he felt that way because he was able, he thought, 
to um, make the king see things his way uh, as far as the Jews were concerned. And so it says, and all, I've got it all, wherein the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above all the princes and the servants of the king. Amon said, moreover, yea, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the king unto the banquet that she had prepared but myself. And tomorrow I am invited also with the king. In other words, this I'm getting honor after honor after honor. Look at me. Look how important I, I am. I am the man. But then in verse 13, Yet all this availeth me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Man can't enjoy life at all. His life is completely ruined all because of one man. Now, folks, there's a lesson there for all of us. Now, we're not a Haman, and our ego might not be as big as his ego is, but how many times in life when God has given us so much, we'll let one event or we'll let one person just totally mess up our month or our day or something else in our life. We get so centered on the one thing that doesn't go our way that we throw out the window all the wonderful things that, that, have, that, that happen in our life. Now, Smitty's not in here, and Chuck's not here today, but um, as a preacher, um, I know you find this hard to believe, but sometimes everybody doesn't like the preacher. And uh, a preacher could get so fixated on that one person who doesn't like him that it can ruin his entire ministry. It can, it can throw, it can, it, can, it can change his attitude about everything. And they're blinded by that one person forgetting about the fact that there's perhaps a whole lot more of them that maybe like you. Uh, but that's not how we look at things. We always look at the negative. Uh, there's the old um, story about how that um, uh, teacher somewhere uh, put up a, a, uh, a white... Uh, thing up on the wall, just a white sheet up on the wall, and uh, somewhere on that white sheet, he put just a little bitty black dot, and he asked people when they came into the room, what do you see? And they said, well, I see a black dot. Why? Because people focus on the one little thing that is the imperfection. And here was a man by the name of, uh, of Haman, who evidently had the whole world in his hand, but because of one person. One Jew out of 15 million Jews. One person in a kingdom. When the king and Esther had invited him, the king's on his side, the queen's on his side. He's got all the money, he's got everything. But that one person has totally ruined his life. It's turned into a terrible, no good day. He simply wants to move to Australia. Yes, sir. Absolutely. And that's always a bad thing about um, uh, holding grudges or wanting to exact vengeance. Uh, basically, you're letting that person run your life that time period. You've given up your freedom. And um, I've never been one to hold grudges because it honestly takes too much work. i got too many people to think about and figure out, well, is that person like me or not like me? Well, if they don't like me, I need to treat them a certain way. That's a lot of work. I rather, I'm lazy, evidently. I just don't want to do that. Uh, but as Jeff says, uh, this person, uh, Mordecai is r running his life right now. 
Because as we're going to see, it's making him react to him and act in ways that he shouldn't be acting. Anything else somebody would like to add? All right, so verse 14. Then Suresh, his wife, and all his friends unto him, uh, said unto him, Let a gallows be made fifty cubits high, and tomorrow speak thou unto the king, that Mordecai may be hanged thereon. Then go thou in merrily with the king into the banquet, and the thing pleased Haman, and caused the gallows to be made. Now, King James Version has gallows. I'm just curious, anybody have anything else? What do you have? Impaled. And we talked about this earlier. Literally in, in the Hebrew here, it's make a wooden tree. It's not gallows. We think of gallows, we think of, you know, hanging someone. But as we talked about earlier, the practice of the Persians was to impale people. Uh, they would stick a pole up in the ground and have a sharp end on it, and they would literally just set the person on top of it and push them down uh, until it killed them. A very gruesome, a very painful way to die. And then afterwards, the body would remain on top of that pole for everybody to see to prove that, you know, this person got its just uh, uh, justice. And so he's talking about digging a hole and putting a pole in the ground with a sharp end on the end of it. And he wants to make sure that everybody's aware of who Mordecai is and how that he's being punished for what he's done because it says it's 50 cubits high, which would be, uh, this will make this around a 75-foot pole. So this is not just a little pole in the ground. Uh, this is something that's going to be way up in the air for everybody to see. And um, also looking at the text, you understand and appreciate the fact that uh, while Haman refrained himself, as Michael alluded to, uh, he couldn't just go kill Haman. The text tells us he had to do what first before he could kill Haman? He had to get permission from whom? Had to get permission from the king. So um, even with his authority, he understood that he couldn't just take someone, even someone who hadn't been bowed down to, hadn't bowed down to him, and uh, put him to death. So, um, boy, our time has run out. How's that even happen? Um, I was having so much fun with y'all. But anyway, so close the class with the idea that he's going to have this uh, pole set in the ground to impale Mordecai on, and he thinks once he does this, he can go to the banquet. And his life can be happy now because he's gotten rid of the one thing that's the burr in his saddle, the one thing that's stealing his joy, the one thing that's ruining his life. And once he takes care of that, then life will be great from then on. But we better stop there. Thank you so much for your attention.